okay, what is an emotion in your life that you would like to experience more of right now? This is a part, this is for participation. I know we're starting off cold, so it's a little bit much, kind of first thing, but you can shout it out. Peace, joy, wonder, sleep, yes, my favorite of all the emotions. Uh, So joy is definitely an emotion I think that we are all wanting to experience more of in our lives right now. And that's probably always true to some degree, right? But I think in in a lot of ways, it's especially true right now. And we're starting a new we're starting a new series. And in this series, we're going to be reading through the book of the Bible called Philippians. And the dominant theme of this book is joy. Some people have called it the Epistle of Joy. And this was an intentional choice to choose this book with this theme for where we are right now. There was an article that appeared in the scientific, nature, the scientific journal Nature recently, and it showed that 40% of adults in the United States reported symptoms of anxiety and depression in December of 2020. And that's compared to an average of 10% through January and June of the last year. The Kaiser Family Foundation found a similar rate in January of 2021. That if you were to look at the CDC survey data set from which all of this information is drawn, it shows that in mid-March, even as vaccination efforts were ramping up, that there was still a 35% rate of occurrence of clinical depression and symptoms of anxiety in our country. Which means that on any given day of the week, at least 35% of Americans are experiencing these symptoms that are typical of a major depressive episode or a generalized anxiety disorder. And what that tells us is this pandemic is more than an infectious disease. That we are living through a widespread mental health crisis in our country. And this isn't just something that's happening out there. That's real for us. It's affecting us. And you guys don't need statistics to tell you that. I'm sure that each of you knows the darkness that you have felt in the last year and a half. Is it any wonder that so many of us have opted for just getting by? That just surviving the day can feel like a huge win in and of itself. And yet in the midst of that, here's what scripture teaches. It tells us that our God is radically committed to our joy. It teaches us that he is actually far more committed to our joy than we are. There's this book that I'm reading, and the author, Ian Harbour, he says it like this. He says, this this mysterious transcendent God has made himself known, and his heart has always been, from the first page of the Bible to the last, to dwell with his people in never-ending joy. From the first page of the Bible to the last, the agenda of God is to dwell with his people in never-ending joy. In fact, he is so committed to your joy that he has providentially ordered the universe such that it is possible for you and I to experience joy in all of our circumstances. And this isn't just a Christian platitude, which is the way that probably many of us have experienced it. It's not a call to kind of new age optimism. God promises us that deep, soul-satisfying joy is possible. 
This is not Marie Kondo, hold up this shirt, does it spark joy kind of joy. I love Marie Kondo, and cleaning out my shirts has been very profitable for me. But we're talking about a deeper kind of joy there. Something more real than that, a kind of joy that moves us to celebrate, to sing, to dance. And what Scripture teaches us is that that kind of joy is possible in the midst of suffering. It's hard enough to believe in our cynical world that joy is real, but Scripture tells us that it's not only real, but that it's possible in the midst of pain, even for the 40% of us who are dealing with clinical anxiety and depression. That even in the midst of those things, that God has joy for us. And I want to ask you to consider something with me this morning, and it's a scary thought. But what if getting back to normal isn't what we actually need? What if, rather than causing all of these mental health issues, COVID is actually exposing a reality that we've been trying to hide from? What if what it's showing us is that our autonomous, me-maximizing, radically free lives aren't actually making us any happier, but actually they're making us less happy, less stable? And that to believe that going back to the, to the way things were to believe that that's going to heal us is to, exu- is to assume that our hectic, overscheduled, media, self-saturated existence is a solid foundation for joy. It's not. Our joy needs a more solid foundation. My joy needs a more solid foundation. And don't get me wrong. I am pumped to get back to normal. But church, God has something to say to us in this moment that we cannot miss that if we're going to be people of deep, abiding joy, if we're going to be salt and light here in East Nashville, if we're going to see the kingdom of God come in our world and in our lives, we need to have our joy set on a new foundation, on a sure foundation. We have a chance to self-consciously, as we re-engage and rebuild the rhythm of our lives, to do it upon a more solid foundation that sets us up to experience the joy that we're promised in Christ. It's what we were created for. It's what our world is desperately searching for. So what we're going to talk about this morning first is where our joy comes from. Where does joy come from? Then we're going to talk about what that joy costs us, what we have to lose to experience that joy. And then finally, we'll talk about the new agenda that joy sets for our lives. So where joy comes from, what joy costs us, and the new agenda of joy. So Joanna is going to come up here. Joanna, you guys know Joanna Cole now, right? Yes, is going to read our scripture for us this morning. I'm excited for you all at home to see another face of a person who is part of our community. So this is Philippians 1, verses 1 through 10. 11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thanks, Joanna. Let's give her a hand. Yes, right? Okay. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, thank you that your heart and desire for us as your people is that we would experience joy in our lives and we confess our inability to stir that up in ourselves. So Lord, as we uh, come and place ourselves before your word, would you speak to us? Lord, would you change us? Would you transform us? And would you walk with us on this journey of pursuing you and through that pursuing joy? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about is where joy comes from. And what you need to know is we're going to kind of weave a little bit of the background of Philippians into the sermon kind of as we go along. Okay, so Philippians is a letter. It's a letter written by Paul and Timothy to the church in Philippi. And we see that in the first verse. It's kind of like the two from fields in an email. So Paul and Timothy, that's the from field. And then next is to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the observers and the deacons. That's the, that's the two field of this letter, essentially. And we're going to come back to the Paul and Timothy part, but we're going to start on the, on the two field of this letter. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi. So just first off, I don't want you to get distracted by the word saints here. Okay, saints just means holy ones. And it's throughout the New Testament a phrase that applies to anybody who is in Christ. So that's the way that we are taught to think of ourselves as Christians is people who are God's holy ones. Not because we've achieved something kind of extraordinary in the Christian life, but because that's who we are as the people of God. So it's, uh, it's to the holy ones, the saints, in Christ Jesus. And this phrase, in Christ Jesus, is where we're gonna camp out a little bit this morning as we try to understand where joy comes from. So what Paul doesn't say right here is to all the Christians in Philippi, right? That's probably how we would say this. If we were writing this letter, we were putting something in the two field, or hey, so-and-so, it would be hey, Christians in Philippi. But that's not what Paul does. And this word Christian actually only occurs in the New Testament, guys. It only occurs three times, the word Christian. It never occurs in the teachings of Jesus, and it never occurs in the teachings of Paul. Okay, instead, we get this phrase, in him, in Christ, in God. That's the label that the New Testament writers choose when they're describing what it means to be a Christian. See, oftentimes the word Christian is, is, is a label that we put on ourselves. And it can mean a whole variety of things. And it's helpful to a degree, but this phrase, in Christ, carries a lot more theological freight. I'm going to read you a quote from this guy named John Stott. He describes what this phrase means. He says, The expressions in Christ, in the Lord, and in him occur 164 times in the letters of Paul alone. That's a lot of times. And are in, He doesn't say that. That's just my comment, okay? And are indispensable to an understanding of the New Testament. To be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ, as tools are in a box or our clothes are in a closet but to be organically united to Christ as a limb is in the body or a branch is in the tree. 
It is this personal relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of his authentic followers. So to be in Christ is to be united with Christ. And this makes all the difference. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it is through our union with Christ that we receive all of the benefits of this new life. It is union with Christ that allows us to participate in his power, in his life, to experience his love. And for our focus this morning, it serves as the foundation of our joy. The joy that we're talking about doesn't come apart from Christ. It can't be separated from him. It's something that we have because we are in him, because we are united to him. It's a joy that's founded in our connection with him. So to pursue joy then is to pursue Christ. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is just like this teaching tool that was used several hundred years ago to kind of help teach people the basics of the faith in this question-answer format, it asks the question, the first question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper, another pastor, says that he likes to say it as glorifying God by enjoying him forever. That's why he calls himself a Christian hedonist. What he highlights and and what the catechism highlights is that scripture calls us to be rabid in our search for joy, knowing that joy flows from the foundation of our relationship with Christ. Psalm 1611 says it like this. It says, you have made known to me the path of life, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, so I have this friend who works for a company where he gets four months off for paternity leave. Doesn't that sound awesome? Okay, and he and his wife have had three, they have three kids, uh, three and under. Which means that in the last three and a half years, he has had a year off of work. Wow, that's awesome, right? Also, a lot of responsibility at home, but that's a, that's, a different, that's a different story. So he has this benefit because of the company that he works for. The benefit, he has the benefit because he belongs. And you don't get the benefit without being a part of the company. The benefit and being a part of the company go together. That's true for us in our relationship with Christ. The benefits come because of the relationship. And he loves working for this company. Now, here's the difference, though. Companies use their benefits as an attempt to manipulate us. And good or bad, that's just true, right? It's a way of kind of keeping people in. That is not true with Christ. We have these benefits because of our relationship with him, but they they flow freely to us as a gift. Not as a manipulation. And that's true for us, that our joy flows freely from this union that we have with Christ that Paul is describing even here in the very opening of the letter, in the to field of his letter. And that doesn't mean that we exclusively experience joy when we're thinking about Jesus or doing spiritual things. What it does mean is that our joy is derivative. That all of our joy flows out of our relationship with Christ. Because all of the things that bring us joy can now be seen in connection with him. So our relationships with each other, as people who are part of the body of Christ together, these relationships derive from the person of Christ. So as we experience joy here, we're we're experiencing a joy that's derivative of Christ. 
The joy that I get on a beautiful day is derivative of him because he's the one who created the day. It's the same thing with great food or good sex. And sometimes we make a big difference in the church about the difference between joy and happiness. Have you guys heard this before? Anybody with me this morning? Yeah? That happiness is something that we have because of our circumstances and joy is something that we get aside from our circumstances. And there is some truth to that. But I think that it obscures, uh, it obscures our reality because it makes it seem like joy is only something we're allowed to experience in kind of like vaguely spiritual terms. And that the things that make us happy are not actually joyful things. And that's not true. I want to submit to you what I think is a better option, which is that joy is a product of our, circumsta- of our circumstances. But it's a product of our circumstance of being found in Christ. And that circumstance, Paul would say, Scripture would say, that circumstance is so defining for us that that then becomes the controlling circumstance through which we see the rest of our lives. So just to kind of illustrate this point, we're going to go back to the, to the, to the from field in this letter. This letter is from Paul and Timothy. Okay, so what you need to know to make a, a long story short is that here, when Paul writes this letter, Paul is in prison. Paul is writing this epistle of joy from a prison cell in Rome. And essentially, Paul is under house arrest. That's kind of the way things worked in the Roman Empire. Prison wasn't so much a punishment, it was the place that you waited to see if you were going to get punished. And Paul is there in prison, not because he, he's stolen or, or killed someone, but because, uh, because as he was preaching the message of Christ, it stirred up enemies against him that leveled false charges against him. Kind of in the course of this trial, because he was a Roman citizen, he was allowed to appeal to Caesar. And that's what he does. He appeals to Caesar. And so he's shipped to Rome to await trial in front of Caesar. That's where he's writing this letter. And he's writing it to one of these churches, to the church in Philippi, that he's planted on a previous missionary journey. These guys loved Paul. And he loved them. We'll probably get a little bit more into their stories in other sermons we get a picture of Paul planting the church in Philippi in Acts 16. So if you want to do some extracurricular study, you can go read those stories. They're very cool. Anyway, they, they loved Paul so much, they were so thankful for him, that they raised money to send to him, to comfort him and aid him while he was under arrest. And this letter is him writing back to them. It's a thank you note to them, expressing his gratitude for their support. And this church was very concerned for Paul. How was he doing, right? Was he okay? How are his spirits? And this letter not only is is telling them thank you, but it's addressing their concerns for his well-being. And here's what he tells us. This is what he's telling the Philippians, is that in the midst of some very intense suffering, Paul is writing a letter overflowing with joy because he is experiencing joy even in this circumstance. Paul doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He might live, but he might very well be sentenced to death. And he doesn't have a timeline. He's just waiting while being under house arrest and socially isolated. And in the middle of that, he's expressing this overflowing joy that's possible because of his union with Christ. So joy, this kind of, this kind of life-giving, soul-filling joy, that it, it's possible, Paul would tell us here, because we've been connected, because we've been united to Christ.
So what does joy cost us? That's what the joy is. That's where it comes from. What does it cost us? And here's kind of where we hit the turn in the passage. Yes, all of our joy is derivative of our relationship with Christ. But in verse 1, man, we're still in verse 1. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And this word servant, guys, can also be translated as slave. That's very provocative. Paul is identifying himself first and foremost to his friends as a man who is owned body and soul by Christ Jesus. He says that he and Timothy belong to him. They've lost their lives, their autonomy. They've given those things completely over to Christ. And that's not just for Paul and Timothy, like super Christians. That's true. That describes who we are as people who are in Christ. We're people who are slaves of Christ Jesus. That's why Romans 6.22 says that we have been set free from sin and we've become slaves to God. It's why we call Jesus Lord and Master. There's no union with Christ without slavery to Christ. Is that jarring to you at all? Are we still awake this morning? Is that jarring to you at all? It should be. Paul intends it to be jarring. But as Paul uses and develops this metaphor, as he does kind of throughout his writings, we learn that the slavery that Paul is talking about is not a dehumanizing type of slavery. And and it's not a slavery that somehow legitimizes a slavery that was practiced in this country. No, it's actually the opposite. It undermines that kind of slavery. Paul tells believers, hey, don't sell yourself into slavery because that was a thing that was happening in the Roman Empire. He says, because ultimately you belong to Christ. He is your Lord. Christ is our Lord, not any other human. And what scripture would teach us is that we are all mastered by something or someone. We are all slaves or servants to someone or something. That's what Bob Dylan says, right? You gotta serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. And it's belonging to Christ that frees us to become who God created us to be. It's not dehumanizing, it's, it's the thing that is most humanizing. Because we as humans were created to be in relationship with God. And a God who created us to be dependent on him for our source of joy. Who delights to pour that joy and love into us. We were created to serve him, not, not to be our own gods. This whole, the whole story of humanity is a story of how we make terrible gods. The whole enlightenment idea of man's autonomy being some kind of brave discovery is just a repackaging of the lie that started way back in the Garden of Eden that we should actually be our own gods. And the results of that, guys, have been devastating. Devastating. That when we set the agenda, when we are the ones setting the strategy for our own joy, the results are horrendous. The results are hatred and wars, death, destruction, devastation, the disfiguring of ourselves and of our world. And have Christians participated in that at times? Yes. But to the extent that Christians have participated in those things, to the extent that they've legitimized legitimized those things, what we see is the failure of the church to respond to the lordship of Christ. Those episodes mark not our devotion to Christ as Lord, but our perversion, are a place where the church has refused to actually let Christ be her master. And what Paul is talking about here is nothing different than what Jesus himself taught. 
what Jesus, is, what Jesus promises is that whoever would lose his life for his sake will find it. What Jesus taught is that it's in surrendering our autonomy, losing our own agendas, that we're able to recognize ourselves for the creatures that God created us to be. Losing is at the very heart of our faith. It's losing our agendas, losing our priorities that puts us in right relationship with God. To be or to become a Christian is to submit your life to Christ. It's to allow him to shape the way that you think, to let him change the way that we feel, to direct and command how we're to live. And we're called to continue in Christ the same way that we were to be found in him. We don't go back to hunting for joy in all the same ways. I want to read to you Philippians 3, 7, and 8. This is kind of the theme verse, the key verse for the way we're going to walk through the rest of this uh, sermon series. It says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. What Paul is telling us is that joy comes through loss. It's like what we talked about on Palm Sunday. The cross is significant not only for what it accomplished, but also as the means by which it was accomplished. The cross was the means by which Jesus achieved his joy, which was us and our redemption, which is also the way that we, are, that we will experience joy. It's the way of the cross. It's suffering. It's dying to self that's the path that we walk in as we search out the joy that's found in Christ. In those places of suffering, we have fellowship with him, is what scripture tells us. And this is essential. We typically think of joy as a result of our highly curated life choices, right? Like I get this email, I think probably weekly, from this company called Huckberry. And it's like, it's a highly curated, all, they don't, I don't think they even manufacture anything. They just sell me other people's things, right? But they like put their stamp on them and they say, hey, these things are cool things. And I'm like, yes, they are. Right from the clothes to the furniture to the house plants, all of it. They have some partnerships, you know, they do interviews with, with cool people that I like to read. But it's all about curating. And they're curating a very specific kind of life, a life that they promise is gonna bring joy. It can be cutting out the things that don't spark joy, you know, simplifying, having a capsule wardrobe, the power of saying no, adding the right things, meditation, the outdoors, spirituality, transcendent experiences, which can kind of become the way that, that we approach joy in our own lives, right? Does anyone else approach joy like that? Guys, that is a weak foundation. It's a foundation all about self. It's just self-worship. And if we're honest, it's really, it's just dressed up consumerism. Only wealthy people can, can approach joy that way. However vibey the mission statement is, the company is still trying to sell us stuff. And the way of the cross is entirely different. It means that for us to pursue joy is first to set down ourselves. It's for us to die to ourselves. It's for us to, to, be, to identify ourselves as slaves to Christ Jesus. And our path to joy over the course of our lives, it will lead through suffering a pain that just occurs to us because we are humans. And that path will lead through the kind of suffering and pain that comes into our lives because we are Christians. And there will even be suffering and pain that we opt into. 
in faith that it's in dying to ourselves and our agendas and our curation that we would actually find joy. That's the path of following Jesus. Okay, so that's where the joy is. He is where the joy is, right? That's what we have to lose to find joy. And we've got to talk about our new priorities. What do, what do we pick up after losing our own agenda? We see it in verses 9 through 11 here. We see it in Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. You realize that is God's agenda for you. That's the agenda of joy that he has set out for us, that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's the agenda that we pick up is growing as people who abound in love more and more with discernment and with knowledge. When you submit to Christ, that's the agenda that you're submitting to because that was actually the agenda that drove him to the cross. His love is a boundless love. And so as we pray that our love would abound more and more, we're praying that our love would be like the love of Christ that came for us. As we pray that our love would have knowledge and discernment, we're praying that our love would be like Christ's love, a love that is so wise that it can always choose what is best and what is right for us. It is the unfailing, never giving up love of God that came for us, that bought us, and that is continually poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's the agenda of love that you and I have now been called out into the world to participate in. And to say that God's agenda is love can also be confusing. Because love is preached on every street corner in this city, isn't it? It's preached in every religious institution. It's preached by every secular humanist. It's preached in our music and on our TV shows and from the pages of our newspapers, if we read those anymore. But it doesn't take a whole lot of looking to realize that the way that we're defining love in our world, that there are a lot of mutually exclusive definitions of love. And that's why Paul prays that our love would be shaped by knowledge and by discernment. This love, first and foremost, is a love that's rooted in the love of God, which means that it's love as God describes it, as God defines it. A lot of people want to set the love of God against the particulars of Scripture. But what Paul tells us is there's no love like that. There's no love apart from the knowledge and the discernment of who God is. Love is not just a matter of generating warm, fuzzy feelings. It's shaped and directed by the love of God, of his will and by his word. It's like when Kindle became a, Kindle, what is the word? A beer what? An advanced Cicero, okay? I don't know if you guys know this about Kindle. Kindle is one of our elders. Kindle is uh, an advanced beer Cicero. Yes. What that means is that he's like a, he's like a sommelier for beer. And it took a thou, literally, I was talking to Kindle about this this morning, thousands of hours for Kindle to study to, be, to, to reach this certification with beer. And what it means is that Kindle knows a lot, he, he knows a lot about beer. He's tasted a lot of beers. And if you've ever met Kindle, you know that about him. His palate, right, it had to be shaped by knowledge and discernment. He had a love of beer, but that knowledge, that love had to be shaped, had to be directed. And, and all of these hours of training and all of this travel to taste beers from all over the country, what Kindle has been doing is training his love. 
and he's learned how to distinguish bad beer from good beer. But it's not just bad from good. That is pretty simple, more or less, right? Many of us can do that. But also to distinguish good beer from best beer. That's what knowledge and discernment does. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And I will just tell you, the impacts of that are vast. Because if you've ever spent time around Kindle, you know that. Right? One of the things I love about Kindle is that he loves to figure out what kind of beer people like. And because he knows so much about beer, when he sees a beer, he can buy it and know, oh, this is going to be perfect for so-and-so because he knows the flavor profile. I love seeing him come into a meeting and bring beer because he has beers for everyone that specifically fit them. A love that has been trained by knowledge and discernment can do that. It's a powerful kind of love. And what these verses tell us, guys, is that that kind of love, it actually results in holy living. Does that surprise you at all? Because we often put love against holy living. And, and that's, not, that's not true. That's not the way Scripture talks about it. That actually, a love that is shaped by knowledge and discernment is a love that's going to make us look and live more like Jesus. It makes us into people of integrity, people that tell the truth because our God is a God of truth. It makes us people who treat other people kindly. It makes us generous. It changes the way that we relate in our work, the way that we act as supervisors to other people. It changes our sexual ethic. It changes everything about us. Is there cost in that? Absolutely. Does it sometimes feel like losing? Yes. But there's joy for us in that. And this love affects our relationships. We see this in these verses as Paul describes his relationship with the Philippians. It says, I hold you in my heart. For God is my witness how I yearn with you all for the affection, with the affection of Jesus Christ. That the love that has been shaped by knowledge and discernment in Paul has overflowed out of him into his relationship with the people who are also part of the body of Christ. He loves them with a the kind of love that has been shaped by knowledge and by discernment. It's warm. It's full of affection. I mean, if you guys feel like you have missed this community in this time, that's a good sign. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's a yearning to be together. That's a good thing. That's a holy thing. And what Paul is telling us, what he's praying and what he's showing us in his prayer is that the kind of love that has been shaped by knowledge and discernment, this new agenda is going to overflow out into love for these people. And if you've not been here very long, I will tell you, loving the people in this room is going to cost you something. Because they're people. Them loving you is going to cost you something. And it's going to cost them something. There's no community without loss. There's no love without loss. That's the way it goes. But the promise here is that it's worth it. That there's joy in that for us. That as we model our Jesus in the way that we love each other, it's an invitation to experience joy with him. And the joy isn't just the joy in these relationships. It's also the joy of relationship with people who are outside of the church. The Philippians were partnering with Paul in his work of the gospel. They were partnering with him in his joy to take the gospel out to other people. There's joy in the mission of talking to people about the abundant and overflowing, wise and discerning love of Jesus. Like, if you were trying to love the people on your street with this kind of love, do you think it would cost you something? Yeah, <laughs> it does. Again, being in a relationship with people is costly. 
it's, in, it's inconvenient to say the least. I will tell you, the times that Jesus gives me the opportunities to love my neighbors always seem to be the opportunities that are most inconvenient for me. And there's a gift in that. Because the promise here is that in the way of the cross, there's a joy in losing. There's a joy that we find in the loss that comes as we are called to love other people. Will that take a reorganization of our lives and of our priorities? You betcha. But what Paul is telling us here is that it is so worth it. That there is joy for us as we allow Christ to reshape our agenda and our priorities. So that's, what we're be, that's what we're being invited to over the next several weeks as we study this book. We're being invited to a life that is full of joy. A life that God has promised us. A joy that's more solid and firm maybe than the things that we have set as a foundation for our joy up until this point. It's a journey that's going to involve losing. But there's a promise there that as we lose, that what we experience is relationship with Christ. As we love each other, as we love the world that we've been called to, as we look to imitate Christ in the ways that we live. I want to invite you guys to go on the journey of learning those things with us, learning these things together as a community over the course of the next 10 weeks. Pray with me. Father, uh, we are thankful that you care about our joy. Lord, that is such a crazy thing to say that the God of the universe is dedicated to our joy. Father, we thank you for that. And we confess that often, God, we do not want to find that in losing. We would way more prefer to curate our lives. And Lord, we recognize that for what that is today, that that's sin. Lord, would you help us to lay it down because we don't have the power to lay it down ourselves. Lord, would you capture us not with our own efforts, but Lord, would you capture us by your abounding and overflowing love. Your love that has loved us with all knowledge and discernment, knowing totally who we are and and loving us anyway. A love that's come for us and set your affection upon us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.